Welcome to How to Write Kai Papers, the podcast. I am Dr. Leonard Nucke, an associate professor at the Stratford School of Interaction Design and Business and the director of the HCI Games Group at the University of Waterloo in Canada. It is difficult to turn an exciting HCI research project into a successful Kai publication. This podcast is here to help you. This is episode seven, interview with Katrin Gerling. So my name is Katrin Gerling. I'm an assistant professor at KU Leuven in Belgium. And in terms of the Kai community, I have served most recently as the papers chair for Kai Play, but I have also been subcommittee chair for the Games and Play subcommittee at Kai. And I've been chair for the works in progress or late breaking work track at the conference. So you've done this for many years, I one could say. Yes. If, uh done several chairing roles. You've been essential to our community. You've definitely put forward great changes. And we don't say thank you enough in this community. And I just want to say thank you for all the unpaid work that you're doing, because I know how it makes me feel every time I, I take a new service role. And then I'm asking myself, well, but do you get paid at the end of the day? Uh, so thank you so much for, for doing all of that, because I know at the heart of it is really a, a deep caring about the community is really what drives people to take these roles. Thank you for caring and making this process better. Thank you. But I suppose it's our duty, right? If we want a good reviewing process, if we want good publishing routines for all of us, then yeah, we need to chip into that. That's true. Today's interview, we want to keep the entire thing to half an hour in total. I'll see if I can hit my goal there. But I just want to basically ask questions in two structures. One is going to be more about writing and your own writing process and your tips about writing. And then the second half, I'll be tapping into your um, expertise in terms of reviewing and what you're doing on the end of administration and, and what people are looking for in papers so that our junior researchers are getting both of these bits of expertise. Okay, so that being said, and I'll, I'll mute myself in between so that we have the best audio quality for this as well. So in terms of writing, let's start with your own perspective of what types of papers do you think the Kai community wants? I know this is a loaded question because we're all kind of like, hmm, <laughs> if we only knew. But just in your experience, what kind of papers, what types of papers do you think are popular in the Kai community? And I guess in your case specifically, what you've seen in the Games and Play subcommittee for Kai and what kind of papers are popular and what kind of papers do people want to read? I think we need to differentiate actually between the papers that I think should be popular and the papers that are in fact popular. So when I'm talking about what is popular, it doesn't necessarily represent my opinion and what I value in research as a person. So what we're seeing right now is that there's a clear drive towards empirical work. So typically it's the development of a small technical artifact and then there's a study about that artifact. And I think it's safe to say most prominently it's quantitative work still, sometimes mixed methods approaches, but particular for games and play as well, it really is. Here are some assumptions about a specific kind of game mechanics, for example, or effects that game mechanics could have on players. Then there's an implementation and then papers typically look at what the short-term impact on players is. Because when I talk about quantitative work, that most typically means it's a lab study, for example. So one session of playing something and then drawing conclusions on the basis of that data. That's quite interesting because I asked the same question, I think it was 10 years ago, and it seems like not much has changed since, even though no. many people always advocate for, you know, we really want to bring fresh perspectives and we want to see if we can allow some of that. But it seems to be that little tangible, easy to understand quantitative study 
Um, maybe with a little bit of mixed methods, throwing in just for flavor is, is probably still one of the hallmarks of something that can easily get accepted because reviewers will understand it as long as the quantitative analysis strategy is not too novel. So yeah, definitely agree with you there. What are your recommendations then for young researchers? Imagine you just got a fresh PhD student, which I know you just did, wanting to write their first Kai paper. What do you tell your junior students in terms of preparing them for this type of work? Are you doing anything we're always torn as supervisors between we want the success of the students which means an easy way to success is just to follow the fold and just publish this type of work and so what would you recommend to them is there maybe a strategy in terms of what's best to publish first and what's best to publish later in their career just let me know what your thoughts are on that I think there's multiple perspectives on that because maybe it's a european thing but we're a bit more driven by the overarching research project that needs to be addressed. And then we look at what can we carve out there, what makes a paper on its own, and where could those papers go effectively. And in terms of Kai, I suppose we have a lot of conversations around how can you really achieve clarity in your work? Is it a clearly articulated idea? And once that idea is clearly articulated, we then look at, is it an ambitious idea? And does it really have something that it contributes to that community? And so that's the two-step process. And then we basically start the research work of really trying to delve into it and yeah, developing it further into a full paper. Okay, interesting. So I, I would have assumed that maybe you go about this more with like, contribution first because uh, we always see this uh, on the reviewer side that everyone's just like contribution but then again a junior researcher might not know their contribution <laughs> yet is that why I think it's also hard to know what exactly the contribution is going to be at the beginning of the research. And that's something that I've seen with my PhD researchers over the years, that often we set out with a specific research question or hypothesis, but we might actually end up in a slightly different area at the end of it all, especially if you look at one PhD as the combination of multiple papers. Often the later papers actually take different shapes than what we had initially anticipated because we found something that was interesting along the way. And I think curiosity is actually super important to stay engaged in your PhD over time. And so with that, I think there needs to be a bit of flexibility to, to actually follow that. Yes, there needs to be contribution, but I think that relates back to most PhDs coming onto funded projects here. So there already is a scoped out project basically that you will be working on and then it's up to you to carve out your own little niche in there. But basically at that point, we have already demonstrated to the reviewers of those grants that there will be a contribution large enough to warrant funding in that space. So I guess, yeah, we're not focusing as much on that in the very beginning. Of course, as the idea then develops, the question is, what can we contribute to the community? How can we articulate it in an appropriate way as well? But yeah, sometimes you only know after you've run all your studies, right, what you're actually going to contribute and whether what you thought you were going to contribute still holds. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, and that's almost universal. Definitely in Canada, it's the same that we have funded projects and then have to cover it out within that frame of reference yep. and in the US I think there are similar ways just in, in terms of like how that scientific community around HCI is organized. Okay so that's interesting in terms of scope. Now let's talk a bit more about process because at some point 
the student will have run the study, assuming it's a study and they're not doing a scoping review or a systematic review, which is what uh, most students are doing these days because of COVID is obviously a, a lot of that happening. So let's say they've done the research and now they want to write up their paper. So what are the steps and what are the timelines that you work on? I know that uh, different groups have different turnaround times. We try to always backdate things from the CHI deadline, obviously, which is usually mid-September. So how does it work in your lab? Uh, are you working on timelines? Are you more flexible? What is your experience with that? I think so. I, I do come out of an environment where it really was a very scheduled process of working on your <clears throat> CHI projects over the summer. And I've actually strayed away from that more and more because I'm starting to find it's, it's much more important to make sure there's enough space to think. And maybe that also comes with having to supervise more and more graduate students. I'm not the kind of person who can help 10 students and succeeding and getting their papers in. I need more headspace to be a good advisor. So typically what we do when we start the writing process is we pick one ideal deadline for a conference. So maybe that's Kai, but then we immediately look what are the next upcoming deadlines that could also be a fit for the work so that we can then see if the writing process goes really well. We will end up with a Kai paper in the end, but if it doesn't go so well, also from the student's perspective, there is an alternative path that's already laid out. And in the past, that has actually made it a lot easier for us to then make decisions of do we still aim for Kai or not? But that has also meant going away from that summer focused writing process. So for example, I'm working with a PhD researcher who has already written up parts of his Kai paper at this point. So that also declutters it for the entire research team. And that then gives everybody enough time to give feedback to each other, for example. That's an interesting point. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Feedback to each other within the research group. What internal processes do you have within your research group of senior students talking to junior students or um, maybe even embedded within the larger frame of reference at KO Leuven? Because I know that there's a lot of other HCI researchers there as well. Is there a lot of interaction between HCI research groups? Do they generally tend to help each other? What, what kind of collaborative chi spirit is there at the institution? And yeah. is your veering away from that summer model, is that counterproductive to what everyone else is doing? No, I think it actually works quite well. So we do have a lot of shared PhD supervisions and then naturally people weigh in on papers and projects at the level of the professors who are involved in those projects. With students, that's basically on a voluntary basis. Some people really appreciate feedback from others. We'll send out draft versions of their papers for feedback. We also like pitching the general research idea basically and discussing that because then you can already catch some issues before you actually dive into the writing process. But I want to say at the moment is much more between the advisor and the student and not so much between different students who are part of the group. I wonder why that is. I think because Many of us have very different backgrounds. Not everybody is necessarily writing for Kai, for example. Some of my colleagues work on engineering projects. And so sometimes it's productive. Sometimes it's great to have somebody with that perspective, but there is no you know, formal established process where we would say, okay, and now is the point where we're looking at all the abstracts, for example. Nice. I think it, it really depends. Some groups, it's more structured. Other groups, it's unstructured. But there's usually just that commonality and spirit, which I find can be motivating for younger researchers. It can be. I think it's also risky in the sense that when you write for Kai, when you submit, 
Personally, I think you can make sure that your paper is good enough to be considered, but what happens beyond a certain point, whether it actually gets in or not, there is a degree of luck involved, right? And then if you've had close collaborations, students giving each other feedback, and then somebody's paper gets in, the other person's paper doesn't get in at that stage, that can be a tough process as well. Even if there's team spirit and no jealousy, I think sometimes, yeah, there's then recalibration and refocusing after results. So I also see the emotional part of that process to, to some extent there. That's something we talk about in this How to Write a Kite Paper course a lot is the, the randomness of the reviews where at yeah. the end I always say, like, I've, I've taught you everything that you need to know in terms of uh, what you can do, but there's always this unknown element in there that you cannot account for. So just keep in mind that luck factor that still goes in. But unfortunately, emotionally, we cannot always get rid of that. Like you said, when the rejections come in, everyone's going to be hit hard. And like what you said earlier, I think rings true in that case as well. Some of the most innovative ideas and some of the, for us senior people, most interesting research usually does have a harder time to get in. So the things that we tend to get emotionally attached to is we tend to have to wait much longer and much more rounds of revision until that actually gets published. I think there is just important to know how do you do that work and how do you resource it? Because that then goes back to your initial question, right? How do you advise a PhD researcher who in their career will depend on having those publications? Do you go for the paper that's likely the safe bet? Do you do something that's a little more out there? So it's, it's tough, right? Because the job market is getting more and more competitive as well. And I think that's also something that you need to keep an eye on. So for the purposes of this course, which is really trying to give them the best tools of being successful, I think then we're really looking at you have to make a decision as a student in this course, are you going to be writing something that is a little bit more advanced? Or what I tend to tell my students is do that maybe a little bit later in your PhD career when you already have that easy paper. So I tend to always advise to start with the really clear cut, simple study, because that is easier to get in. It's easier to do the revisions and rewrites. But I, I know that there's definitely differences in, in supervisory styles. But what would you say? What papers, and specifically now in the last year that we've just gone through that process for KaiPlay, obviously, what papers do you think are easy to write and what papers are hard to write? And why do you think that is? Like for students as well, because you see that in your reviews as well, right? Like some papers just seem to be coming together more easily than others. If we could give students advice on an easier to write paper, what would that be these days, specifically in the times that we're in where it's harder to run in-person studies, where the simple clear-cut study is actually something that is maybe not achievable, at least in the next year for now? I think e easier is the word here, because I don't really <laughs> yeah. want to say there's an easy paper to write, especially if it's one of your first papers. If I look back to my first paper, that was an awful experience because it was just so hard to get my thoughts together properly. Right now in this situation, I would actually say design something that you can study remotely because I think there are specific kinds of studies. Also, if you look at games that can be deployed online, for example, or as a mobile application, that works much more easily right now than something where you know that you will need to work in the field. So I think that's more related to the general design of the research. And what I've seen, what seems to work well, at least if I'm looking at last year's Kai and the papers that got accepted, it's clearly defined implementations that look at 
one specific aspect of a game or a VR environment, for example, and then manipulate that and then run a user study that also looks at very clearly defined effects of that manipulation. And that already hints at something else. Personally, I'd also like to see more papers that are well grounded in theory and that actually make a good effort to take into account all the work that the community has done, that also maybe the psychology community has done, for example, because personally, I think that makes for the strongest papers. And then, of course, we have these unrests in the communities as well, where people might be stuck to older theories, like self-determination theory has seen some involvement over the years. And People still go back to the original. We see some emotional models that have been used for 20 years that might be a little bit outdated, but are still very popular in HCI. So <laughs> there, there's always that thing. I, I have that same problem with my brain hacks. Like people are still using that, even though I've vocally made a case in public that people should stop using it because we have better models now. But I think once something's out there, specifically theory-wise, it's hard to get a, a thought out of people's heads once that thought is published. I think it's not just theory. I, I wish we had a system where we as authors could go back and add commentary to our own papers and how we see them 10 years later. Because I, I have those papers as well where I'm thinking, actually, my thinking has evolved. My perspective on the issue might have changed as well. And I now see that maybe what I designed those 10 years ago wasn't actually what I should have built. And I really love to tell people that just as a reminder, basically, to look a bit further. Maybe that's one of the key challenges for HCI, because I feel like our work is only ever as good as the work that we leverage from other disciplines that are relevant. So True. in my case, if I'm working on a game that encourages physical activity among older people, then I also need to be up to date on the sports science behind it, the critical gerontology in that space. And if I don't manage to do that, then I will, yeah, keep redesigning something that's maybe no longer in touch with where those communities have moved. And that's hard, right? The, I think that's at the core problem of interdisciplinarity is that now, instead of just managing one small discipline where you see the growth in front of your eyes, you have growth from left and center coming in. And yeah. sometimes that's hard to keep track of. Let's move a little bit towards the reviewing side of things. And specifically, how do reviewers, and this is specifically for the people taking this course, I always get this question every year, specifically when I teach it at CHI. So what do reviewers are looking for? And everyone always says contribution, but what is that, right? Like how do reviewers evaluate papers and what quality criteria do they have for excellent papers? Can you tell us a little bit more about that process and maybe also hint at how you've changed the process for KaiPlay together with others, obviously, to, to look at these rubrics, context, methods, clarity, like where does that come from? Yes. So effectively, when we ask reviewers to determine whether something is good work, then I think what we're looking for is when we say contribution, we want to know something after reading that paper that we didn't know before. And we want that knowledge to be valuable and relevant to us or to our research community. So in the end, what the reviewing process then needs to determine is, um, are these conclusions that the authors are drawing, the findings that they're presenting, are they valid on the basis of the methods and the implementations that they've presented, for example. So to some extent, the reviewing process then turns into an exercise of determining, has this paper produced knowledge in an acceptable and rigorous way? And is that knowledge valuable to us? And 
whether something is valuable or not, I think that's where most of the debate comes in because how do we deal with things like novelty, for example, right? How, how do we deal with something being exciting versus something that is perhaps more incremental, but more rigorous in the execution? And that's where we've then looked at designing a rubric to actually structure the reviewing process a bit more because what you're also seeing is at the level of the ACs, at some point you will need to make a decision. So if the program committee looks at what can we realistically include in the conference, then we need clear instructions from reviewers on what is good work and why it is good work. And on that basis, you can then try to engage in that really hard exercise of working out which are the best 35 papers that we want to have at KaiPlay, for example. That's no easy feat for anyone in, in that position of having to make these value judgments because you're constantly trying to define what is value for that community. And you have that burden of trying to know what is good for that community at that point. And it's, it's obviously very difficult. So I do think it, it does help to break down these sections. I think at least for the writing process, it helps to think about, okay, did I situate it in the context? Am I okay in terms of how I wrote down my methods? And the clarity is a piece that we always see. That's always as a reviewer, that's the easiest piece, right? Because uh, we see that so often that just the reporting isn't proper, right? With many excellent scientists that just have a hard time selling their thoughts when it really comes to selling that research. So I, th I think you're right. So what do we do as a community to ensure fairness in reviewing? Because what always happens, and, and many of the people taking this course will have, have their papers rejected. And so the instant rejection or the instant reaction is, th this wasn't fair. Something bad has happened to me. How do we ensure fairness in reviewing and operationally, is that even possible given that we're all volunteers doing this for literally no pay in late hours and there are a lot of papers to handle and the burden is really on a few senior people to ensure rigor and fairness in that process. So to what extent is fairness even possible, if at all, and what are you doing to ensure that? I think fairness is definitely something that we must strive for as a community, because if we would say that our process is fundamentally unfair, then I don't think it is something that we, we should maintain effectively. So fairness more widely is actually something that is really difficult because with the move to the journal model for KaiPlay this year, so we're moving away from giving scores, numerical scores to paper, and we're looking at accepts, minor revisions, major revisions, and rejects. As papers chairs, we've spent so much time on ensuring that decisions are made in a consistent way. So that is basically the approach from a top-down perspective. But that then goes further to the ACs, for example, who have to make sure are the reviews of good quality? Are the criticisms in the reviews valid? If we're rejecting a paper, are we doing this for the right reasons? If we're accepting, are we doing this for the right reasons? We have a huge community of ACs, all with their individual backgrounds. So again, depending on what background you come from, you might see different benefits in certain papers. We're hoping that with asking authors to declare, for example, what their contribution type or their main contribution type is, we will eventually be able to achieve a better fit between ACs and the kinds of submissions they handle. And also hopefully down to the level of the reviewer as well, just making sure that expertise is allocated better. That said, this is all in an ideal world. We also depend on the availability of volunteers. And you can see that this year at the level of the committee, at the level of the reviewers, 
people have less time, people are tired, people are pushed for time. Maybe some reviews are shorter and not as yeah rigorous and detailed as they should have been. But at the same time, who are we as a community this year to fault people for that? So I think there's the issue of the, the pandemic that plays a role. At the same time, I think we must do much better at training reviewers, at training reviews, at just making sure that we all have the same values, that we have a shared vision of what the reviewing process should actually contribute. And so to some part, I think the better guidance we provide as a community, the better reviews we will hopefully end up with. But then also going back to the perspective of the PhD advisor, it is also my duty to make sure that I teach my PhD researchers how to write good reviews and how to be the people who provide constructive feedback and not those who just go for all the reasons to reject a paper and leave it at that. There's a real art to that. And, and obviously that's a whole different course to really teaching the a good review. And, and then specifically that perspective taking that we see so often where somebody says, I really want this research to be different. Like some reviewers would review the paper and say, I would have done it this way, but no, you got to yeah. put yourself in the shoes of the authors and say, they have decided to do it that way. So you're going to have to enforce that. I think that's usually like one of the biggest challenges for reviewers to put themselves in the author's shoes and find the reasoning of why they did it that way. Instead of saying, if I would have done that study, I would have done it completely differently, right? I think it's hard because sometimes I feel like that also comes with spending more time in academia because when I look back to some of my first reviews also as a junior faculty member I have written reviews that in hindsight I'm not proud of because I was lacking the perspective to actually understand what the authors were trying to but I wonder if sometimes when that happens we don't actually realize what we're doing and I think with time, we become better at detecting those instances in ourselves where you're going overboard and you're actually telling somebody what kind of work you would have liked to see. But that's not the point. You should be reviewing what's in front of your eyes, basically, and figure out whether that has merit or not. So, hard. Yeah, yeah, I think it's just hard and it takes self-reflection as well. And as a profession where you never have time to do anything, I, I also wonder how to make space for that. Yeah, like you, you can't just invent time. Every day is limited. And so the burden <laughs> yeah, is just yeah. crazy on everyone. I yeah. agree with you. Okay, so since we're out of time, talking about time, we're out of time. Do you have any parting words that you want to give our young researchers on their way as they're trying to build their first Kai paper? What is the biggest key tip for, coming from you for writing a, a Kai paper? and maybe some words of encouragement for success. <laughs> and, and I know that this is a moment where some people get all cynical and, and say, you know what, it's all random. <laughs> but we want to take away from that and, and support more in terms of if you want to even the odds a little bit, what's the best way, what are the words from Katrin to, to take I think there. it is random to some extent, but I don't mm. want to be cynical about it for a change. I'm trying really hard. Actually, my advice would be to pick a project that you're passionate about, because whether it goes into Kai or not, it will then be valuable to you personally, and it will hopefully also be valuable to the communities that you're working with in that research. And I honestly think that is more important than picking something that Kai likes or that will make it into Kai easily. If I'm looking back now at the papers that I wrote as a PhD researcher, eventually everything got published and it got published at good venues. Not always the papers that I had my money on, basically. But I think, yeah, be kind to yourself and 
be patient. Eventually, it'll work out if you're making sure that you're actually willing to criticize and improve on your own work. That's great. Thank you very much uh, for all of your insight today. It was really a pleasure talking to you and looking forward to bring this out there to the broader community and put it on the podcast and on our YouTube series. And thank you so much for your time and all the help and support and all of your service that you've done over the past uh, years. You're welcome. Thank you. And yeah, thanks for having me here. It was a really nice conversation. Thanks.